Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello, this is Idwin, it's Wednesday the 25th, and you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Unfortunately, due to COVID-19 and the regulations put in place by the state and federal government, Wednesday Breakfast is taking a short break from our traditional show, which means that today's show is going to sound a little bit different from the norm. However, we will be bringing you content in the weeks to come, albeit a little bit more creatively than usual. On today's show, we'll be having alternative news, and then I have some recordings that I actually took back in February during a conference called Activism in the Margins. Uh, We've got two speakers on today, and I'm pretty excited to share this audio with you guys. So, first off, alternative news, and then on to some conference coverage. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom. Nitty-gritty, hoo-wee. Right down to the real nitty-gritty. First up on alternative news, the government has come under fire for continuing the same work and concessional requirements for workers on the CDP, or Community Development Program. 
The concessions, or mutual obligation requirements, as they are so insidiously called, require individuals to continue to turn up for work and attend group meetings to avoid suspended welfare payments. These requirements are controversial on a regular day, but have been called out as dangerous and downright cruel with the spread of COVID-19. Now, facts might have changed since uh, I have recorded this and this has gone live to air. However, it still remains the fact that all of last week and the weeks before, CDP participants were told that they must continue these behaviours, despite the health recommendations, despite the fact that uh, the government has been telling service providers for over a week now that there is a high likelihood that a larger scale community outbreak of COVID-19 will occur in the near future. This decision also disproportionately affects Aboriginal communities as 83% of CDP workers are Indigenous. The scheme, on a, as I said on a regular day, is coercive. Under these conditions, it's just ludicrous to continue as it is. Here is Senator Melandiri McCarthy calling out the government for not stopping mandatory group activities for vulnerable CDP participants earlier. Apologies, the audio is from a video and thus of a lower sound quality. Can I call on the Prime Minister and can I call on the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs in this country that you must allow uh, people on CDP in this uh, right across, there's 33,000 people, uh, to not have to hold on to the mutual obligations. We have had providers uh, refuse to go and provide activities, refuse to go and do any kind of programs in our communities and rightfully so, because they're concerned about their own staff. But what happens is that if those programs are not provided, then all of those 33,000 participants will be breached, there will be no funding, no money coming in, and it is not the ideal circumstance in a situation where there is already risk when people are wanting food and wanting to feel safe. So I call on the Prime Minister and the Indigenous Affairs Minister to make sure those mutual obligations do not have to be met during this time of crisis with the coronavirus. Another group that is disproportionately affected uh, by COVID-19 are the 30,000 men, women and children on temporary visas, many of whom are asylum seekers and refugees living in Australia, and the thousands excluded from Medicare and Centrelink on similar sorts of visas. The health crisis shows the brittleness of our system that cannot and will not provide for some of our most vulnerable. We've heard a lot about what stimulus packages will do for citizens, but not for those that the government has placed in its too hard basket or is forced into this state of uncertainty. I reference these groups, Indigenous Australians, asylum seekers, people at any point of the housing and security, and others, because as usual, when something happens in our society, it hits the hardest for those who have been marginalised and oppressed by our norms. This is definitely the time to reach out to those in the community and support these individuals and groups. Another thing I wanted to bring up on this theme is the Pay the Rent Scheme, which was introduced earlier this year as a way to fund money back into First Nations communities. These represent reparations for the use and profit that non-Indigenous folks make off stolen land. Now, time has rolled on. It's, it's now March. Invasion Day was a few months ago. And these sorts of things can easily become flashes in the pan if we don't hold ourselves accountable. So I thought I'd do the reminder. For all that can afford it, pay the rent is an ongoing payment. It is due every 26th of the month. And to many of us, it's a reminder that we, that we participate in upholding and benefiting off a system of ongoing colonisation. It is what you can afford. For me, that's $5. But there are many different organisations that you can 
give to. And these include Pay the Rent Victoria, the Victorian Aboriginal Funeral Fund, Grandmothers Against Removal, Removals, Stop Adani, and more. I will put a picture in this week's uh, rundown of all the different organisations, their BSBs and account numbers. Other than that, uh, I hope that you have been able to keep away from the barrage of COVID-19 information. Sorry that it was what was on my mind this week for alternative news. Hopefully next week we'll have Robin to give us some, you know, a bit more of a mix-up. Sorry for being so glum. But as it's heavy on everyone's minds, I hope that you have a lovely week uh, where you can focus on your family, friends and social distancing, but also maybe catch up on a few shows that you've missed, relax, spend some time in the garden, spend some time with your pets, uh, find, I suppose, the good moments in what is a national crisis. And we'll now get into the rest of the show. But first, here's a song by Aurora called It Happened Very Quiet. Oh, 
Underneath the ground at the Olympic Dam mine, there is an old, sleepy lizard. BHP is mining right into that lizard named Kalta, and it's not so sleepy anymore. The old frog and lizard, they really know the mining company gotta go. The lizard returns protestable 2020. Uncle Kev is putting out the call. This is an invitation to all people and protectors of the land and waters to get involved in the creation of Autonomous Zone as we move for peace and justice. BYO, your own creative response to the nuclear industry and BHP's water theft. Keep an eye on the Lizard Revenge page on Facebook or check out our website for history and info and updates on the lizardbitesback.net. The Lizard Returns Protestable, the 3rd to the 6th of July, Arabana Country. See you there. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Michelle Briere, Mani Dubonais, Ojibwe from Canada. And I am Shakti Hayes from the Cree Nation, Canada. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. And we love and support Community Radio. Why? Because it speaks the truth. You're listening to 3CR. My name is Idwin. And as I mentioned, today we'll be listening to some audio I recorded earlier in February at the Activism in the Margins conference that I attended. To start off, we'll be listening to Jim Everett, a Plangna Maria man of the Pakana of Tasmania. Jim is a poet, playwright, political and academic paper and short story writer whose work has been featured in a range of major anthologies. In this speech, he explores Australia's claim to sovereignty over unceded lands and peoples and the ludicrousness of citizenship in colonial Australia. So what I just did then was pay tribute to the Kulin nations here, their country all round, and, uh, and said that the Earth Mother loves them. And that means it loves all of us. I'll introduce myself perhaps a little bit differently to the written script that uh, was provided to, to Tom and to the conference uh, organisers, who I thank very much for the opportunity to come here, especially Vicky Greaves, who uh, has been uh, a certain... Um, teacher, leader for where I went in the last 20 years. I'm not an Australian citizen. I'm not Australia's imagined Aboriginal 
or indigenous. I am playing in my arena of the Pakana of Tasmania. And uh, I maintain that by not being a citizen of Australia because they've never asked our people to be citizens. There is no formal documentation or ceremonies ever undertaken in this country that made us citizens with any agreement to the conditions that we would accept citizenship. And I've lived by that for most of my life. My, my part in the struggle has been to have an agreement about how we would be citizens because if you go and ask most Aboriginal people around this country, do you want to be an Australian citizen? The ones who are knowing what's going on, they'll say to you, yeah, of course I want to be a citizen, but I want a better deal out of this country that is still colonial Australia. And I always call it colonial Australia because it's still a colony. They still fly the Union Jack. They still have a Governor-General and the Governors in the States and Territories. So it's very important that if this resolution of the issues that we're facing with all this activism is going to be resolved, then the first act by the Australian Government is to come to us and ask us if we'll accept citizenship and under what conditions we'll accept that citizenship. So it's a very important factor to me as to where we uh, keep heading because I've always been in the struggle under that understanding of uh, what our objectives are. In 1976, Truganini died in Tasmania. She was considered to be the last Tasmanian Aboriginal. And uh, the survivors of my families that lived on the islands in particular, but some on the mainland of Tasmania, mainly on Cape Barren Island where I live now, my parents, grandparents, goes right back really four generations to my matriarchal ancestor, uh, Wapiti, and her father was Manalagena. And uh, Wapiti had a daughter who married the sealer, James Everett, and James Everett and Bitsy had three kids and one of them was my grandfather. So there's been no deal made, no deal made at all in what uh, has happened since then. So we were then considered not to be Aboriginal, but we were treated very much as Aboriginal. We were the black bastards down the street. We were the ones who weren't allowed into the hotels. Many turned back from school simply because they were black kids. Um, and uh, if you had the names of Mansell, Maynard, Everett, Burgess, Beaton, uh, Riley, all of those names that are of Aboriginal family names in Tasmania, you were uh, uh, treated differently uh, in the, uh, the makeup of what um, social life was. And I can remember the days when you weren't allowed to go into a pub and um, have a beer with your mates. You weren't even allowed in the RSLs. I joined the army in 1962 and did three years in the Australian Army. I think I was an adventurer when I was young, and so I, you know, 19, go and j jump in the army and go do a, a three-year stint. Um, I don't regret it, uh, but it taught me that um, until such time as the leaders of all these countries come together and talk peace, there can only be war, because that's all they build for. In 1912, the Cape Barren Island Reserve Act was uh, legislated and the people on Cape Barren Island were placed under the Cape Barren Island Reservation Act. And uh, so my parents, grandparents, so on, uh, grew up under this act uh, and 
So they were giving them how much time they was allowed off the island, where they could go to work, who they could marry, what times they had to be back each day because there was curfew times. No alcohol allowed, but the old preacher would be walking around drinking from his whiskey or wine bottle. <clears throat> and so all this that my parents and grandparents and all my uncles and aunties around us in our community had been made to feel ashamed of being Aboriginal so much that they wouldn't talk about it. They would not mention the word Aboriginal because it frightened them, because it gave them the feeling that they were lesser than less in our community uh, and in the broader community as you felt that you was always under the watchful eye of. So it, it, was, it was hard times. And um, um, after the post-Second World War, the post-Second World War areas where everything really did start to motor in this country. And it wasn't just Aboriginals, it was everybody. Everybody was starting to come into the change of the 70s and the 70s was dynamic as you saw from Foley's uh, talk and what Paul was talking about and Willie's been talking about, all those same things um, have um, built the strengths in Aboriginal communities to stand up to say, no, we don't like this enough's enough. We want to have a proper settlement. We want to be able to get on with life without having to be in a political struggle forever. And I, for one, don't want to leave my um, nine grandchildren to have to fight the struggle forever either. As I'm sure most of my brothers and sisters in the struggle feel, you know. So the post-Second World War era came along, 1972, we held a big uh, uh, Aboriginal community meeting in the Trades and Labor Council Hall in Launceston. Um, I co-chaired it with Harry Penrith. This was before he was Burnham Burnham. And uh, from that meeting, we got our funding for our first Aboriginal legal service, which in a sense broke the uh, hold that the state government has had on us. And they accepted it because they also accepted money to provide Aboriginal housing uh, prior to the uh, 1967 referendum, actually, to try and uh, assimilate Aboriginal people onto the mainland of Tasmania. So we'd been through a lot of these, these uh, struggles and the 1972 change was really uh, a big thing for the Pakana Palawa people's actions. I'll just go back, though, a little bit uh, to the 1967 referendum because the 1967 referendum has been um, uh, assumed that that made us citizens. It didn't. It simply said that they'd count us in the census and that the Commonwealth would have the powers to make laws for Aborigines, which they never used. They only ever used them to make laws against us. Move along the clock a little bit further to 1980s, end of 1980s, I mean, we were very active through the 1980s. We took over the parliament lobby. We took over the housing department. We took over just about everything we could because we're still extinct. We're still not a living Aboriginal community. So we're still fighting this mob to say, come on, we've got a community here. We want to be acknowledged as a living Aboriginal community and we want our rights in place. So we get to the end of the 80s and Bob Hawke comes out with the Barunga statement that he's going to have a treaty. Um, being a populist uh, leader at the time, he would try everything. And um, he didn't think of the consequences. He was going to choose seven Aboriginal men, elders from the Northern Territory, to, to sit with the government and devise this, this treaty, which would have been a mere legislation, I would think. 
And uh, that, got, that got knuckled pretty hard by the mining lobby who set up a whole range of high millions, millions of dollars media campaigns against the idea, bricks bricking off past, parts of Western Australia and so forth to frighten the public into thinking that Aborigines were going to have uh, land rights that take away everybody's backyards and private lands. So John Howard came from the opposition and said, how ridiculous, how can you make a treaty with your own citizens? And it was immediately after that that Bob Hawke and Clyde Holding, Minister for Aboriginal Affairs at the time, came out and said, uh, change the terminology from Australian Aboriginal to Aboriginal Australian. That might seem harmless. You've got to know English and the legal meanings in English because that's the tricks they always keep playing with us in the legal English usage and terminology. As Australian Aborigines, we are Aboriginal, albeit from Australia. But as Aboriginal Australians, we're Australians, citizens, albeit Aboriginal. And then when Howard got into power, he changed it to Indigenous Australians. Another little tricky one. I heard him on the radio soon after when he was asked, what's this about? What's this Indigenous? What did you change it to Indigenous for, Prime Minister? And he said, well, everybody born in Australia is Indigenous. So this overcrowd the people and assimilate us through the loose use of language and it's continuing. Aboriginal Australians still being used. Indigenous Australians still being used. We will not use the word Indigenous in Tasmania and we certainly won't allow it to be used so that Aboriginal Australian is the terminology. We get on to people if they do. It's Aboriginal, uh, Australian Aboriginal if you want to use the terminology, but we're not, we're not uh, Aboriginal Australians. So uh, it's important for us that we keep that struggle up uh, because there can be no deals made with the Australian government about citizenship if we're already citizens and it's never been carried out, it's never been documented, it's never been any documents signed, no ceremonies to mark it. So then we move on. They try all sorts of tricks, of course. They also brought out the reconciliation program. Now, the reconciliation program has been turned around to give the image that Aboriginal people have done something wrong and we're out there dancing. All our dancers are out there dancing for reconciliation. I don't see white dancers. Not one. I don't see white dancers getting out in the streets and doing dances for reconciliation. All I see is our fellas out there and that looks as if we're trying to dance and reconcile for something we did wrong. And it's money that carried it in there. Very much like the ATSIC movement, when they brought, put ATSIC together, um, that was a very purposeful action by the Australian government. Because if you go through the 70s and the 80s, and I know the brothers remember this, and, um, and you've got a bit of a picture of it there with uh, uh, Foley yesterday, um, we had a national Aboriginal movement all of the Aboriginal organisations in this country, especially the national Aboriginal organisations like the National Aboriginal and Islander Legal Secretariat, the National um, Aboriginal Federation of uh, Land Councils, the National uh, Coalition that Poli actually used to run, the National Aboriginal Coalition, so there's all, National Aboriginal Education, National Aboriginal Health, all went back to land to resolve those issues that we had in our community. And it made a lot of sense. 
Because how can you have healthy children if you don't have a healthy land? And how can you have a healthy land if you can't even manage your land because they took, took it away? So all these things were going on. It was a big movement. And when we wanted to come together, we could get these people from all over the country to come together as the Aboriginal movement and make decisions about what was the next thing we are going to do to put on the government to, to get them to come to the table with us and see if we could resolve these issues, which was never easy. And if you did get them there, it was always that they talk double talk. So we just, uh, we, we, we just kept going with this uh, um, struggle to try and get the, get the changes uh, from all the actions we did through the 1980s. And in the 1990, um, when they brought um, Al um, Atsi in, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission, they opened up a, 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 a can of worms that we didn't expect. Now, in Tasmania, and I can say this honestly, but we were the leading Aboriginal political thinkers through the 80s. When people, when an issue came up, like the, uh, when Fiji was, uh, there was a coup in Fiji by around Booker, we had them ringing us from the Central Land Council, Northern Land Council, Kimberley Land Council, the Coalition. What's your take on this? What are you going to do about this? We're siding with the Aboriginal people of Fiji. They have a right to, to take their country away from those Indians. They don't have a right to just come in and outnumber you. They were put there by the Brits, let them keep them out. So we're with Wambuka. And that's how the rest of them would then frame their political thinking. And that's just an example. So this uh, reconciliation program is still being carried along, trying to hook it in with the recognition campaign to be recognised in the, uh, the Australian Constitution. Go back to where I started. This is a colony. It still flies the, the butcher's apron. It still has Governor Generals uh, uh, and so on. It is still a colony. It has never been, and in fact, Australia colonised itself. Right now, it is a colonised, self-colonised country because they can't let go. And if you've got an identity that comes from Gallipoli, when we offer an identity, why knock it back? Why not want your identity in this country? And this is what we've been saying to white Australia all this time. Because we have this gift. David Maljali in the Kimberley said, one of my old teachers who's now gone, he said, we, and Victoria Grease read it out yesterday, um, we have this gift for you. We can't understand why you won't accept it. Understand the patterning of this country. Understand how your identity can be here. It's very, uh, very distracting for us that we try to offer something that's worthwhile and um, we're not really getting any positive uh, responses. And it's not like we want to take everybody's backyards at all. We're more interested in, uh, as Australian citizens, if we ever can achieve that, is getting everybody else to understand that care for country is care for people, care for, care for, your, for your communities and caring for health. Because while this climate change is coming on and you see people going out there saying, we've got to save the, 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 the planet, we've got to save Earth, we don't need to save Earth. Earth can look after herself. They're talking about saving humans because humans are making such a mess of this place they can end up killing themselves off, the whole lot of us. But the Mother Earth, she could take another 30 or 40 million years to recover, but she can recover. I have no fear about that. So it's very important that we remember 
that if we want to be on this planet, that we better start caring for country and we better start listening to Aboriginal people about how you do care for country and how you do have that love that Willie talked about because that love is of country. It's of our waterways and our seas and our air and what we're told from the planets and the stars because this all comes together. If you look at our rock carvings, they tell you a lot of stories about what's here, connects there, goes right across from the whale song line, right across this country and creates the patterning of all the other song lines. And that's what is so important to understand the makeup of what's really in this country is made of. And uh, uh, my current research, by the way, is on Aboriginal philosophy. I mean, I left primary school at 14, so here I am at university trying to do a PhD. It's, it's fun. <laughs> but our philosophy is diametrically opposite to the Western world. And we need to get people to understand that. That's why we think differently. And we want other people to see and understand it, even if they don't believe that they can change their philosophy. If they understand why we have our philosophy in place with country and everything else that makes this world what I call the all life or the oneness of all life. Not the one. The one would be hierarchical. The one. But the oneness of everything is what we're connected through to everything else. And um, I've got a short video to finish with you talk a little bit more about that uh, in uh, poetry. So, yeah, we did all this activist stuff through the um, 80s in particular because I, I was a fisherman prior to then. I sold my boat in 78 and came ashore and got involved in the political action. I felt that there was something missing. So um, I joined in the political action. I'd never been a, a political activist really, although in, in 1969 I sort of joined in with everybody fighting against besties to the, for the Gurindji issue and uh, land rights. Um, and, you know, um, it was in the 80s that I really started to uh, get involved. 79 I started. I was on the, land, uh, on the Aboriginal Arts Board with Gary Foley and Chicka Dixon for four years, and they were teachers. Ujuru Nunuckle was there. She was one of my teachers. Uh, Dave, uh, Jack Davis, um, old Albert Mullet from here in, uh, Australia, in um, Victoria, and so on. So I've been very fortunate to have these teachers because I came into it in later in life. I was about 38 uh, when I, I got involved and because um, most of my life had been spent at sea or travelling around Australia, just working at whatever I could in any part of Australia so I could see all of Australia. Um, and I saw the ethnic hatred in this country. That's what we've all come here to do acknowledge that it's there and we want to fight against it. And we do. We need to change this ethnic hatred. It's a mental illness in this country and it needs to be addressed as a mental illness. It's a mental health issue. And it's led by the governments because they keep demonising and the, the media and the, the corporate kings who basically set the rules about how far governments can go because at, at the moment we live under a corporate fascist governance, and that's really there. It's really starting to come out. The um, laws against protesting in Tasmania are being brought back again, for instance. So we might ask ourselves, why are things not changed? Why have they actually got worse? I mean, I think that we had some things better in, 19, in the 1980s 
and we were get, looked like we was achieving things with the rest of Australia. By the end of the 1980s, we were starting to get somewhere. And then, of course, the government moved the goalpost. And once they established Act, um, um, ATSIC, uh, it put money into a system and it broke the national movement structure. And we've lost it. We haven't got it back. And we need to get it back. At the moment, I'm working with elders in our community in Tasmania to get a voice from the community because all our organisations are under the incorporation and they're controlled by conditions of grant and a whole range of other things under ORIC, the Office of the Registrar of Indigenous Corporations. I want to stop there. I want you to watch this movie. I want to end with a bit more of a positive note about things. I want you to take this movie. You know, I'm, I'm the, I get the, the, the main run in this one, of course, because I'm it in there. The, the uh, cameo, I think they call it, don't they? But I want you to just listen to this because this, this issue about water we've got in this country relates to every other thing in the country. So I just want you to listen to this, please. The film, please, special. And unfortunately, I do not have the video footage uh, with this piece, so Jim Everett's words will have to stand alone for now. I will endeavour to find that video and put it up on our social media sites on Facebook and Instagram. That was Jim Everett talking at the Activism in the Margins conference earlier in February. Teach me, honey, what?
Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you yours. to all What's of you for What's giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. Next up, we have a speech from our 3CR regular Scheherazade, joined by Arkh El Idrisi, discussing the practice of a queer, a traditional organisational method recently used in Morocco's summer resistance, triggered by the death of Harak Harif and the following resistance that came out of it. A queer symbolised a direct indigenous response to the shutdown of freedoms occurring across the country and created a way to meet and organise both offline and on. Scheherazade talks about how this ancient practice was used in the 21st century. So uh, just firstly, uh, we would like to acknowledge that we meet on the stolen lands of the people of the Kulin Nations and we pay deepest respect to elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience and resistance of Aboriginal people in the face of ongoing settlement and colonisation. Okay, so um, in this paper we'll argue that the Indigenous practice of a queer, meaning circle, a traditional form of direct participatory democracy that has transferred online, is at the root of political resistance uh, within the hierarchical movement in Morocco. It's now been just over three years since the death of Mohsin Fikri. Uh, so that's uh, Morocco and the Rif is the northern part, so the border between uh, Africa and Europe and also the border between the global north and south. Um, Okay, so it's now been three years since the death of Mohsin Fikri. So in October 2016, in the indigenous non-Arab, so Amazigh, northern region of Morocco, the Rif, which borders Europe and the Mediterranean, the 31-year-old fishmonger was crushed to death in a garbage truck after an attempt to recover his supply of illegal swordfish that was thrown by the authorities in the... Uh, through his stock away. Uproar quickly ensued, leading to a series of nationwide protests continuing for several months and demanding an end to Hogra, a term referring to the humiliation imposed by authorities. Hogra was also a key uh, sort of concept and uh, that was in the Arab Spring as well in 2011. Uh, So... Uh, yeah, referring to the uh, humiliation imposed by authorities. The Hirak al-Shawi, so popular movement, or Hirak al-Rif, the movement of the Rif, was born. It also demanded for better access to health, particularly 
cancer treatment facilities, and we'll see why in a moment, and education, as well as other socioeconomic factors like jobs and infrastructure developments. So in a sense, FICRI uh, represented the vast inequalities and cu current power imbalances, protests against police, corruption in general, and against the deep state, the Mahsen, which is a term used to describe the highest authority of Morocco, so the king and the inner circle of elites. Protests following the recurrent abuses of human rights have been ongoing in Morocco. These events, particularly post-2016, led to mass mobilizations in the towns affected. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have the time to go into every single protest that's been happening in Morocco, but they are all connected in a way. Um, so, uh, yeah, so led to mass mobilizations in the towns affected, as well as unprecedented online attention, pointing to the possible convergence of protest movements, but more importantly, the link between them all. So since Morocco celebrated its new king after the death of his father, who led militarised campaigns to quash dissent, soft diplomacy replaced brutalised force, at least on the surface. So from 2011, so from 2011 Morocco has undergone a high-speed privatisation and industrialisation process. And though this has led to many improvements, particularly in investment and infrastructure, it benefits the city and elite and does not bypass the global forces of neoliberalisms. So, for example, in 2014, local residents in the Rat district were driven from their homes and forced to live in huts after a Saudi company bought the rights, uh, bought the land for development. So, and for 30 million euros per year, the EU bought the rights to fish in the Moroccan coast uh, in the Moroccan waters, and that was in 2014. And so neoliberal policies such as these where, where large corporations destroy local industry, undermine local livelihood. So leaving young people like Mohsin Fikri jobless, desperate and illegally trading illegal fish. So the death of Fikri incited mass protests erupting in Al-Husayma, bringing in a variety of dynamics, including questions of amazirte, so indigeneity, youth, socioeconomic inequalities and opened up long-held tensions for the struggle of the Rif, a marginalised region whose previous king sought to contain by deliberate oppression during the years of lead. Um, at first, authorities were hesitant to crack down, but by 2017, the pro uh, which, were the pro which were the largest protests since 2011, so by May 2017, hundreds of protesters were arrested. The military moved in, along with the expulsion of foreign journalists. And by October, mass trials were held and sentences of up to 20 years were handed down to some, including the Hirak Rift spokesperson, Nasser Zefzafi. So locals in the Rift, the broader Moroccan public and the interconnected diaspora, both inside and outside the country, was able to quickly mobilise, share and disseminate video clips, images, news and other resources through uh, various uh, internet communication technologies, uh, mainly uh, Facebook, WhatsApp and Twitter so further enabling this heightened sense of protest. And to understand why this was, such, why this was the largest protest in, in the kingdom since 2011, we need to contextualise it within a broader geopolitical and neoliberal colonial context. So briefly, I'll just quickly explain, because it's very important, uh, the, the history uh, of the RIF. So uh, the colonial history. <laughs> There's much more to it, but yeah. Um, so briefly, the mountainous region is is the borderland between Europe and Africa, as I mentioned before. The area was also the site, just go to this slide. So, 
Okay, the the uh, area was also the site of the continent's first post-colonial state in the 1920s, after the unification of several tribes who successfully beat the Spanish colonizers and set up their own republic that ran for six years. This republic was a f- threat to French colonial rule, who colonized most of Morocco, and whose governing system um, uh, the current state inherited. So, who is the f- and the f- this French colonial? Uh, rule, who with forces uh, of the Spanish and the Moroccan Sultan heavily repressed the Republic. The region is home to the first known instance of aerochemical warfare on civilian populations. So acquired from Germany post-World War I, Spain released toxic mustard gas, the effects of which are still believed to be felt today. It's impossible to know as research to the linkage is banned, but we do know the, research, the region faces some of the higher cancer rates, highest cancer rates in the country and yet have no cancer treatment facility. After independence from European colonial rule, the region faced harsh repression to protests in the late 50s and 60s, after which a continued politics of marginalisation, which some scholars point to a tactic of isolation, led to more protests, again brutally repressed in the 80s. The people that lived through this are still alive today and these stories of a brutal colonial past and repressive militarised dictatorship are embedded in the collective consciousness. So back to the present day, often when we talk about protests and this protest in particular, we tend to look at the network of tools mobilised, such as a variety of internet communication technologies, uh, so mainly social media sites, uh, and scholarship has also pointed to collective memory, mobilising diaspora and Amazigh identity, and a variety of coordinated tactics. But what makes the underlying fabric of the movement one of the strongest foundation is the evocation of Amazigh indigenous forms of organizing. So queer, meaning circle, in the Rifian indigenous dialect. And this is where Ashraf will take over and he'll explain uh, what queer is, its digitization, uh, and the importance of, the, of queer in the collective consciousness. D'accord, vas-y. <laughs> You can hear me? Okay, super. So, hello everyone. It's a great day to be uh, with you online. It's been uh, a long time and since I didn't speak uh, English. So, if you don't uh, understand anything, you can take a note and uh, I will answer you after. So, uh, before I start on defining uh, the term aquer, I will define I will define the Greek term agora. So the agora in Greece is a gathering place that was an assembly of thinkers, artists, and intellectuals to change and discuss ideas for the, the common good of individuals. And agora literally means gathering or assembly. So when coming back to aquer. It's an authentic Amazigh word of North Africa, exactly in the Reef region that has the same meaning as Agora, with an extra use beside the general public assemblies, which is the private form that we will discuss on the following points. So, so the question that, that you may all have meant is there is a relation between Agora and Aqua. And before answering that, I will have to tell you that the Amazigh synonym, so the Amazigh synonym of Aquer is Agro. So, 
when I say agro and agora, donc I guess you got the answer to the question. So the answer is yes. There is a direct relation, as according to the Dr. Ahmed Adahiri, that is a scholar in the history of the country in North Africa, that the linguistic root for the word agro is agro, which is an ancient city and an ancient history in North Africa. And it is from where agro and agora were driven. So there is a constant use of acquire on daily life of Amazir. As an example, when it comes to the perfect space, we'll find it used in small families or over daily meals table as the family members discuss different subjects from, from daily life handling or for sharing information. Besides the use of acquire and small families, it's like only used in family and families, gathering and religious or customary events. So, however, acquire is also used in public space and market or uh, public assemblies for sharing information or, dis or dis uh, discussion tanks that concern the tribe. So, at this point, we are talking about acquire as a form and model for conducting and managing life matters with what is related to the tribe. So, tribe is the family or whole family as that is before creation what, uh, of what is called the state. So, that's why Akbir, or equivalent and plural, form and style, always accompanied Rifan Amazir and all of their historical stations. And, the, and here, I will give you an example of that station, which the Rif movement, Iraq Rif, that was defined by Michael A. Charazet, in which I was one of the leaders that moment now. So, for example, in that movement, acquire or acquiring was relied on as a basic pillar for making decisions and for exchange of information. And you can see that rely on acquire, we, we use it to call for public meeting and coffee and public space, which are considered as acquiring for making decisions and to give word to all, uh, to all the attendants. And those meetings are ruined by one of the movement activists and the end of the meeting, all the points that were discussed and the decision made by attendants were writing and used to conference the state fans to respond to the human rights demands that we advocate. So, in fact, used to organize dialogue meeting, equivalent, and public space, especially Myers Square that was the center of the discussion uh, during the movement period. And the goal was to give everyone a chance to express their ideas fairly and democratically and also for exchanging information. That leads to the end of creating collective awareness of the people. So, but, but the regime of Morocco had another opinion as it was afraid of those acquaintances that we use it to have in Martyr Square daily, that it ends on closing that public space for only three or four consecutive months uh, from January to uh, March uh, in 2017. And in that period, we had to come up with a solution. 
and it is where the idea of the development virtual gathering and the internet came to the surface. They move in to create a groups on social media like Facebook, WhatsApp, to create an alternative media channel on which we create a virtual aquare by using the live technique. As uh, I, uh, I will show that an example as six to ten activists use it to meet and the coffee and go live on Facebook and discuss as we use it to do on March Square, but with more added value, which is the number of the live followers that can go as low as 500 people to thousands of people. And it is where we achieved a lot of gold. Among the most prominent is contributing to nourishing the collective awareness of the people or the activists. So right now, I will talk a little bit about the way we use it to work. Uh, so in the method of organizing and preparing life, we will often be in agreement in advance on the topic that we will discuss in the live through the media page on Facebook. And when the live appointment come, we meet in one of the coffee and we launch the live and one of the activists take the floor in order to present the episode or the topic. And as an example of the topics, we discussed it. For example, uh, state theft of uh, peasant land, uh, real estate problem, unemployment, uh, identity, and other other subjects. And in how the follower participate to life, it was only limited to uh, comments because the technique of adding a person to the life was not available at this case today. As, uh, as it's case today. So the, the comments were sufficient for participation, whether to ask questions and the topic or contribute ideas and information. And the person who owns the live phone is, is the one who reads the comments uh, periodically to enrich the discussion. So right now uh, uh, we, will, we will talk a little about the state repressive machine on the internet because the, the state, the machzen or the state, is a following us on the internet. Uh, and even a queer and virtual space was not spared from repression. The, the state, through electron cell or the so-called electron flies, attacked the life every time and the life exposed to stopping because they reported to Facebook that the live content is uh, unifical. I will give you an example. One day, uh, we were talking about uh, the issue uh, of killing uh, five young people in 2011 during the February uh, 20 movement by the Muslim state, and the number of the floors reached 700 directly. Suddenly, the life was exposed to a lot of reporting and the life stopped. So, when we tried to launch, to launch the live again, it was difficult to reach. 700 followers who were following the live. So, despite this, it's still up today. Aquare and virtual space is imported through the technology of life and effective tool to comfort the repressive machine of state, especially with regard to the, to the exchange uh, of information because the state is only promoting its ideology which makes us with the youth of change, move 
beyond brutal new liberalism and new colonialism. So I will give the parole to my colleague Charazet to continue. Thank you. Thank you, Shukran, merci. Tu restes là, tu parles pas. Okay, uh, so I think we I just need to wrap up. Uh, we don't have much time to talk about uh, what happened uh, afterwards, but um, I'll just show you two photos. Those are the military camps um, that are still in place uh, uh, in Hosema. So you can see there. Uh, je vais juste élargir ça, on voit plus te voir, okay? <laughs> Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, okay, so while that's loading, um, yeah, so obviously the repression moved online. So the um, so in the trials, I'll just so in in the tri in the mass trials I mentioned earlier, they used uh, all the sort of uh, Facebook posts and live as evidence to uh, convict these people who ended up being in prison for uh, who have been sentenced to 20 years, um, uh, quite uh, 53. Uh, the king. Uh, sporadically pardons people as a way to maintain total control um, but like the most important people within that movement uh, uh, most of them have 20 years in prison um, I just wanted to quickly show you some photos um, of how just to show how militarized the public space is so this is uh, in sort of in between the town and the beach uh, you can see uh, in this section all military camps, which have uh, reduced in numbers, but um, it's still there and present. Uh, and also, just uh, this photo is, the, is a picture of the public space where these aquaria were taking place. Uh, so these uh, uh, circles where people would discuss ideas on on how to uh, do their hierarch or their movement. Um, and yeah, I'll just quickly uh, show you this. So this is, um, you can access all this data on Facebook, uh, on Facebook transparency. Uh, but you, you can see that since, uh, so the movement was in its peak between January and March um, in 2017. And that's when the Moroccan government started making uh, requests to get access to profiles. And you can see now it's been used um, uh, for a variety of different things. And I'll just uh, quickly mention that just before I left in 2000, so I just arrived a week ago, uh, and just before I left there's been um, a quite a uh, huge wave of repression on people that have been posting on social media and then put in, in, in jail for their posts. Uh, so just one example is a journalist... Um, tweeted at the beginning of the year that the Hirak trials were unfair uh, and he was uh, put in his name's Omar Adi and he was put in he, he was put in jail and his trial has been suspended until um, later in the year. Uh, so that's just uh, proving that uh, the repression doesn't actually go. So while digital spheres escape some of the stifling hege uh, hegemony and, and the repression of the state, uh, we cannot assume, like many scholars do, um, and point to that technology alone uh, can bring us social and political justice. Um, and as this case shows, uh, rep repression can easily move online and one cannot escape it. Um, what we can see, however, is a form of curating collective consciousness in the public and private space. Uh, and I don't know if I have time to, to uh, do I have time to just 
say one more paragraph? Okay, cool. So um, at the front line of the global north and global south, so the rift being the border, the physical border between uh, Europe and Africa, uh, the organisational politics is the antithesis to the hierarchical and colonial structures uh, of the Moroccan state, which was also inherited by the French, who divided the country into useful and useless Morocco, so based on profit, prioritising the lands that were beneficial for the protectorate. So the RIF activists and other Amazigh activists... Oh, I wonder if I can show you the other... So this is an example of um, a protest in the Sahara. Uh, so, yeah, so the RIF activists and other Amazigh activists using methods that predated both the Arab colonisation and European colonisation uh, are creating their own public spheres and ones that are conceptualised outside the Western paradigm, countering the hegemony of the state. This form of resistance and political organising has survived countless historical invasions, Arab and European colonisation. Through a queer and its digitisation, local activists were and are able to use Indigenous practices to form solid foundations in ongoing forms of resistance, challenging the state hegemony in a mode of constant evolution. And at the front line, this is, I just had this in the um, abstract, at the front line of the neo-colonial and neoliberal border. There we go. Thank you. <laughs>
And that was the Singambian jazz band with their song Farafina. Before that, we had Scheherazade from 3CR talking about the indigenous practice of Aquir in Morocco. Next up, I thought we'd end on a positive note. I've got the recording of, um, one of my favourite recordings of Malibu Safodi. And I can't take credit for this. This is her own works. But it's it's called self-care as a tool of liberation now this is from the, uh, a feminist perspective and very much talking about female empowerment but i think it generally comes back to kind of the the, the place of crisis that we're currently in and i think there's a lot of merit in this idea of self-care as a form of empowerment and uh preservation so i thought we'd end on her words we as women have a very complex relationship with ourselves, you know. There's a very thin line between who we want to be and who society expects us to be. If you look at the history of what it means to be a woman, you will know that women bodies have always been marginalized bodies. 
We've never truly, a woman has never truly belonged to herself. She's either just belonged to her family, she belonged to society, she belonged to her husband. That is why some men have the audacity to write books telling women how to think and how to act. And some women will write books on how to be a fascinating woman because you don't have the ability to determine who you want to be for yourself. So you find yourself in a conundrum. On one side, you're marginalized. Society, there's lots of expectation of what it means to be a woman, when you need to get married, when you must have children, how you need to address society, how you need to behave. On another side, looking at our democracy, there's lots of opportunities for women to be influential in the economic space, political space, to be influential in policy making. You know, with this new slayage um, language, slay us girl. And when, 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 I mean, it happens to me all the time, Twitter and Instagram, when they put up a slayer and the slayer has traveled 16 continents and has, has, has done all these great things. So you feel pressured that I need to be part of this development and I need to slay, I need to have magic. <laughs> and then they remind you, as a woman, we God. I need you to take a very good look at me and then look at that rock. <laughs> a rock is cold, it's hard, it's lifeless, it's just there. And here I am, as a woman, I'm being likened to a bowler, to a rock. I ask myself, what have we deserved and what have we done to a point that we are likened to rocks? <laughs> and my favorite, a woman holds a knife by its sharp end. And I look at my beautiful hands and I'd be like, may I not be that woman who is forced to hold a knife by its sharp end? This is a very complex relationship that we have with ourselves as women. And then society packages this beautiful woman, this beautiful woman, and they call it balance, right? This conundrum that I'm talking about, they call it balance. You can be an amazing wife and a mother and still rocket as an entrepreneur, as a businesswoman. They call it having it all, being everything to everyone. You wake up in the morning, let's say you're married, you kiss your husband good morning, you fix lunch for your children to go to school, you wake them up, you make sure that they get bathed, your husband only wants you to iron the shirt because you know how to make that line, you iron that shirt, you have to shower, after showering you have to make sure that your children get to school, either you drop them off or there's transport, then you rush because your first meeting is at 7 o'clock and you don't have time to read emails, your meeting's at seven, after seven there's a meeting at eight and there's a very important meeting at two o'clock. 
And then the crash phones and says your child is sick. You tell your boss, oh, I have to rush to pick up my child. I can't make this meeting. And your boss said, when you took this position, you knew what it entailed. This is so unprofessional. You try and phone this babysitter, has nowhere to be located. So unfortunately, you have to say, I can't attend the meeting. I am going to get my child. You get your child to the doctor. After the doctor, you go home. Hey, you need to cook. This time your child is crying because the child is sick. And then the other child comes from school and you have to undress them, put them in a bath, still make sure that the, cook, the pots are, are cooking, put dinner on the table, feed, 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 feed. And when whew, you're about to sleep, that husband goes. <laughs> Sounds exhausting, doesn't it? And some might be like, Malebu, you're exaggerating. There's no such thing. But really, there are people who are living that life because why? Balance. Having it all. Everything for everyone. When I found myself on that floor, December 2015, I realized that I had been living a life that is trying to be everything to everyone. From the age of 10, I was that young person who started community work. At the age of 10, I was counseling people. While my peers are running around outside, I am counseling people. Everything around my life was, was, was centered around helping people. When I was in corporate, I remember that I didn't have a lot of time for community work. And one leadership coach said to me, if you're not impacting people, you're being a parasite. And I said, I do not want to be a parasite, so help me, God. So I resigned, and I lived for people. I ran a counseling organization. I ran a mentorship organization for women, for young boys, for young girls. I did a prison research study where I worked with, with inmates. I was a speaker, meaning every single weekend I was speaking. I worked with the Department of Education, and I still studied. And I still had a day job at Facebook because I'm that notorious Facebooker. And people would say to me, Malebu, when do you sleep? And I'd be like, I'll only sleep when I'm dead. Audre Lorde says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. When I woke up the next day after my pool of tears, I phoned a friend of mine because I wanted to reach out. I cried and he said to me, Maleb, that's so unlike you. Snap out of it. You're strong. You're a lioness. <laughs> and I nearly fell into that trap. I nearly fell into that trap. Then I decided that I will no longer put my body under pressure because a lot of women today are dying because of stress-related diseases, because of pressure, because of all sorts of things that we carry. And that is when I decided that in order for me to be effective in society as a policymaker, in politics, I then needed to start to put myself first. And the reason Audre Lorde says self-care is a form of warfare is because if you're a marginalized body, 
that is meant to be last and put everyone first. The minute you put yourself first, you are messing up status quo. Because why, when you put yourself first, I'm sure some of you are sitting there and say, hey, dinner must be ready now, my children, hey, my husband, if he doesn't find me at home, because we're so socialized to put others first. The minute you put yourself first, you are messing things up. You are saying that I am enough. And so my challenge for us today is that if we want to be effective citizens who are truly impacting the economy, policy, politics, it is important to put ourselves first. It is important to say that I have to choose what I want to be and not what society has put out me to be. It is time that we become the women that we want to be. Thank you very much. That was Malibu Safodi, a South African writer and just all-round amazing woman. And I will be playing one more song and then we'll be wrapping up for the show. So thank you so much for tuning in to Wednesday Breakfast. I'll be sleeping under stars tonight Not sure exactly where I'll be Maybe underneath the pale moonlight Or maybe underneath that tree Riding in the sky tonight Everything will be alright If you let go Humans Will gather in a place tonight Everything will be alright If you let go
And that last song was Black Smoke by Emily Waramara. Look, thank you so much for joining in. I am sorry for the non-traditional show. It's going to take a lot of us getting used to this whole recording from home and previous content, but I think it should be fantastic opportunity. It should be a fantastic opportunity to listen to some conversations that maybe we haven't been able to play due to interviews or regular programming. So, yeah, thanks for sticking with us. We'll see how we go in the coming weeks. We'll keep you informed. The station as a whole will keep you informed. We've heard some fantastic voices today, including uh, Jim Everett talking about citizenship in Australia, as well as as well as Scheherazade talking about a queer. And just finally, that was uh, Malibu Safadi talking about self-care as a tool of liberation. I was Edwin, your host this week. Uh, next up is Stick Together. Have a lovely Wednesday, guys. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.